Welcome to SkyCast episode 12, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing episode 412, The Chosen. So, what did you think? Um, not my favorite episode, for sure. It was, there were a few good moments. Overall, I think this was actually one of my, like, lesser favorites of the season. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. I also feel like there was just, like, a lot of anticipation because we're so close to the end. And I feel like most of the things that happen in this episode are sort of themes and 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 moments that we've already kind of seen play out over the season. Yeah, a lot of this episode felt like we were retreading earlier episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess they kind of had to do to, to like, bring everything back together, but... I also just didn't need it. (laughs) Right. And I think, like, there wasn't any one specific thing that I felt like they did wrong. Overall, I felt like they did a – it was very well written. I thought it was well produced. It just doesn't stick out as one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, Before we begin, I just wanted to take a quick second and remind everybody um, that we would super appreciate it if you could just take a quick second and rate us and review us on iTunes. It's really helpful for other fans of The 100 to find us. Um, So go do that. Go do that now. (laughs) Um, so let's get into the recap. Okay. And I think today we have decided to, we're going to branch off for like the Clark Bellamy stuff and the um, Kane Jaha stuff, but not until everyone branches off in the show. So we're going to start and just go until then. So uh, we open up and all of the Sky crew are being herded out of their living quarters and into the main hall and they're locked inside. Um, and Amori and Murphy find each other and Amori tells Murphy that there's only room for 100 Arcadians in the bunker now, that they're no longer safe. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting that they, they chose to immediately humanize this dilemma um, by putting the face of a child in the forefront. You know, like 100 people is just a number, but one person is a tragedy. And I, I think the writers knew that they needed to slap a face onto this problem, and there's no cuter face than this little <laughs> kid. And I'm, I'm sorry to say, it was a really smart move. You know, I, I like, see this kid, and I heard Hardy yelling for him, and I was immediately like, oh my god, like, what? what is this troublemaker going to do now? Um, I, I knew that Hardy would be back at some point, and I'm really glad that it was for this episode because it really helped put a face, as you said, to um, really all the nameless Sky Crew members, which, you know, let's be honest, we're not that upset to lose. Um, but we know Hardy, and he, he reminded us that there were families in here that are about to be torn apart, even if, you know, we haven't been following them for four seasons. Uh, and along those lines, too, were you at all scared in this scene that something was going to happen to um, Ethan, that, that little kid? Because the way it was set up and with the grounders kind of pushing and shoving everyone forward, it felt very ominous to me. Um, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't worried about Ethan. I think I recognized this from the get-go as a ploy from the writers to, again, humanize this like insurmountable problem. But I was getting really claustrophobic from the way they shot this. And because it's me, you know, I just like it kept reminding me of that scene in Pirates of the Caribbean when the pirates attack Point Ro- Port Royal and, and the little boy is wandering around screaming for his mom. So it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. I just wasn't like worried for his life. I mean, I won't lie, I was really, really worried for Ethan for a second. Um, I, I would never put it past this show to to hurt or kill anyone, like even a child. Um, but when Hardy found his son and you know, nothing bad happened, I knew that was just kind of the beginning of what would be a pretty painful, hopeless episode. Agreed. And, you know, as soon as they were reunited, it was like I knew it couldn't last for very long. <laughs> oh, also, as a total side note, 
I love that Richard Harmon and Jessica Harmon actually get to interact in this scene as, as Murphy and Nyla. Like, it didn't even register to me the first time that I watched it that this is the first time that they've had a scene together. Um, I, I also, you know, I, I kind of forget that they're siblings because their characters are on such wildly different wavelengths. But yeah. it was cool to see. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love how opposite their characters are. I, I think it's adorable. I just, like, I, I can't believe that I missed this because I'm now going to have to go back and watch it. I, I just, like, imagine them on set together being so excited that they get to work with each other for the first time. Yeah. I feel, like they, I feel like they put that scene in specifically so those two could have, like, a scene together. Yeah, now now that we know where Murphy is going, they're not going to have that opportunity anymore. Oh, and they yeah. were like, oh, my God, we got to make this happen. <laughs> So the chosen ones, to use the episode title, um, they were standing in front of Bill Cadigan's office and Jaha tells Bellamy that three out of the four people that are standing in front of them right now are going to die tonight. And does Bellamy still think he made the right choice? So, so what do you think is going through Bellamy's head in this moment when Jaha asks him this? Because like we see his jaw kind of tick and we see Clark look at him worriedly, but he doesn't really say anything. Um, you know, Bellamy always takes so much of the responsibility on himself, and it's clear at this point that he's going to carry the weight of these deaths with him just as he has all the others, even though it's not necessarily his fault. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it perfectly. I think Bellamy takes this very seriously and feels very responsible for the 300-plus people who are about to die. But I, I don't think he regrets his decision because, again, he will do anything to save Octavia. And if he had to do it all over again, I think he'd make the same choice. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I don't think he regrets his decision. Um, but I can't imagine how difficult it must be to look in the face of someone who's going to die because of a decision you made. Um, it takes me all the way back to episode two this season. And Bellamy's motto was, we save who we can save today. And at the time, you know, he saved a handful of slaves meaning that 400 people, 400 Sky Crew members might eventually not be able to survive on the Ark. Uh, and of course, that plan failed completely. Um, but now he's saved 1,100 that he could save today. It's just that the consequences of this action is that another 364 people have to die in their place. So now Bellamy, he's finally reached the end of who he can save today. Or, you know, has he? There is another. Her <laughs> name is Raven. And as we'll see, Bellamy is the first one to volunteer to go get her. Yeah, he can still save Raven at this point. Yeah, and I, I think it's clear that this is maybe one of the reasons why he is so desperate to go and save Raven. Yeah, I mean, de I think it's definitely a big one. Yeah. There are others. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> um, Raven is on the radio with Abby, who says they're sending someone to get her, not for the things that they know she can fix, but for thousands of things they haven't even thought of yet. This was um, this was such a super sweet line, and I, I think it's cute that Abby emphasizes how much they need Raven. It's it's clear that there's an emotional and personal reason for all of them to bring her back, you know, beyond just her value as a mechanic and an engineer. Raven, you know, definitely picks up on this, and it is so utterly grateful and overwhelmed. You know, it leaves her almost speechless. You know, I mean, for someone as confident in her abilities as Raven, she also needs a ton of reassurance about how much she's needed. Um, she, she never quite feels worthy. Like, like she, she never feels personally like she's worthy enough. Um, she always just seems so relieved to hear other people say that they still want her help, even though it should be obvious because they'd all be dead 10 times over without her. Exactly. Exactly. But it's, it's also not that they only, not only that they need her, um, but also that they want her. And I think it's, it's that difference that means so much to her. You know, she's loved and appreciated as a person and not just as an engineer. 
Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Um, the only family she had growing up was Finn, and he's gone now. And she's tried kind of pulling away. She's tried going it alone. But it seems like she's finally realizing that this, these people who who she's been working with for a year now, they've they've become her family, her new family, and she's important to them, and they love her like as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she can really she can count on them to be there for her when she needs them to be. And and I love that she has finally kind of realized that she has that. Yeah, it's really sweet. So Abby is glad that Raven's all right, and Raven says that Abby will be too. Raven can use the same procedure on Abby when she gets to Polis. Kane asks what they're talking about, but Abby tells Raven they can discuss it when she gets here. So, okay, the first time I watched this scene, I thought this was the writer's way of ensuring that we could put this whole stroke plot line to bed and move on next season. Um, but rewatching it, I'm now not entirely sure that Raven told Abby how to reset her brain. Like, in the way that the, the language is constructed in that scene, it's not clear. And as much as I don't want to consider it, do you think Abby's, like, quote-unquote visions are going to play a role in the next season? No. No, I don't. I, I think these visions were very apt during this, like, apocryphal season. It goes with the with the, the motif very well. But I, I have a hard time believing that between Jackson and Abby, they can't figure out a, a way um, to fix her so that we don't have to endure another season of visions. You know, the end of the world metaphor with the bib- bib- biblical prophets and prophecies has played out at this point, And I just don't see why they would continue it. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess now is as good a time as any for me to say how annoyed I am with this whole, like, Abby vision plotline. Um, they nailed the Raven brain upgrade. That was perfect. But it's like they didn't actually have anything to do with Abby, but still had to show that her brain was affected by the EMP. So they're like, let's give her a vision of Clark dying. Like, that's ridiculous. Raven's quote-unquote visions made sense because she had Allie's coding in her brain that, you know, knew so much background about Becca's research. But the fact that Abby's vision was given so much weight, it's just really obnoxious to me. Like, this is not supernatural. This is 100. It just feels out of place. Agreed. The visions were caused by purely scientific reasons and to treat them as holy um, you know, these like holy visions of the future was like not only out of character for everyone who participated in in this, but for the show as a whole as well. I mean, seriously, Abby is a scientist, for goodness sake. And I, I hope they don't move forward with this next season, but but the way that Abby like brushed it off to Kane, it almost seems as if the writers were making a bigger bigger deal about it than um, it would be if it were just going to fade away. Like they, they could have pretended that Kane already knew, but they made a point to have her hide it from him, and that makes me nervous. Oh, I read that totally different. I, I assumed that they wanted to make a point that she hid it from Kane because she was already planning on not remaining on as part of the final hundred, and she just didn't want to give him any reason to worry since she would have had to say goodbye pretty soon. Interesting. I I did not read it that way, and I don't – like, in the way that I was watching it, I don't feel like she had decided to stay out of the bunker quite yet. Like, I don't think she was feeling great about it, but I also didn't see her having actually decided anything yet. Um, and even if she had, I still don't think that her brain issue and her staying out of the bunker were really connected. Like, she could have decided that with Kane already knowing about her brain trauma. And I, I, I totally hope I'm wrong because the vision thing is ridiculous and I hate it, but um, I, I just got some weird vibes. Yeah, I, I do like the idea that she doesn't decide her fate until later in this episode, and I agree that it's sketchy that they went out of their way to include this, but I, I just read it completely differently both times I watched it. Well, let's go with your version then, because <laughs> I refuse to allow Abby to turn into some, like, freaking prophet next season. Um, however, I won't lie, 
it might be useful to have someone still keyed into Allie's code in some way for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but let's save that for our next episode. Okay. Uh, so Jaha, Clark, and Bellamy come into the office, and Abby says that with the spots they're holding for essential personnel and for children under 16, that leaves them with 80 spots. So, okay. I just, I just want to pause for a second and say that I can't get over what I consider the injustice of this, like, children under 16 situation to be, because, like, excuse me, you considered, quote-unquote, children as people under 18 a little while ago, and then you sent them all down to Earth to basically die. And now you're saying that for any of the delinquents left, if there are any, who are older than 16 but younger than 18, they're going to have to die again? Like, out of principle, all the delinquents should get to stay in the bunker. I am, like, putting my foot down. Enough is enough. Yeah, the injustice is real. This the system is deeply flawed. And Monty isn't here. And he doesn't have anyone present to add his name to the effing lottery. Like, this is an outrage. This is a travesty. <laughs> a travesty. I like, can't I, stand it. I carry such a flame of righteous rage on Monty's behalf all the time. They don't deserve his pure soul or his intelligence, which is superior. Or his <laughs> kindness, which is limitless. Or his adorable angelic face. <laughs> I, I I just can't with all of them. Nope, nope, can't even. <laughs> okay, interlude rant over. Yeah. Um. So so Jaha wants to fight this, but Kane says that fighting will cost them all their lives, and the best chance is to hold a lottery. Okay. So Jaha says that might have worked for them when the chance was to survive, but now it's different because until an hour ago they believed they were safe, and now that's being ripped away from them. And Kane says they need to make people listen to reason. And look, I have to say. It's really hard to make people listen to reason when they're staring death in the face. Like, the threat of dying isn't something that people have an easy time just, like, logicking out. It's a primal fear. Uh, yeah. Kane is delusional if he thinks that he can reassure Sky Crew with rationalizing the situation. Like, they're going to die. This is ridiculous. We can get into this more in the lottery scene, too. But, but Kane himself isn't in the lottery, so everything he says about, like, reason and the greater good ring kind of falls to me. I, I know he, he means them, but I think that's part of the problem. Like, he doesn't have to deal with the fear of not being in the bunker. So even if he means what he says, he doesn't realize how disingenuous he sounds, which is, this is why he can't make people listen to him in this episode. Um, but let's return to that in a bit. Yeah, let's do that later. So Bellamy volunteers to go get Raven, and Clark immediately jumps at the chance to join. And Abby doesn't like it, but Clark needs to do this, and Kane says there will be places for both of them when they get back. <laughs> so... So Bellamy's face when Clark volunteers for this mission is priceless. So much side eye. Like, oh my God, he's pissed. He just wants to get away from her and sulk and she won't let him. His eyes rolled back in his head so far. I thought they were going to get stuck there. Like, Clark, he does not want your company right now, which is what makes this really exciting. Oh God, I thought you were going to say, which makes this really awkward. But I guess both is true. Well, well awkward for them. Exciting for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in all seriousness, I, I love that Bellamy volunteers for this mission um, for two reasons, I think it seems. Uh, one, like I mentioned earlier, is that there is still one person left that Bellamy can save, you know, who wants to be saved and he's going to go get her. And two, he really, really doesn't want to be around to see the faces of everyone who's going to have to die because of his, uh, because of his decision. It's, it's a win-win for him in this. Yeah, totally agree. And, and Clark, bless her also really wants to save Raven, but let's be honest, she really wants to be stuck in a truck with Bellamy <laughs> alone so that they can make up. I, I mean, she she needs to make things right. Clark 
won't be able to move on from what she did until she and Bellamy are on good terms again. And um, I, I, I don't I don't think Clark handles Bellamy being angry at her very well. So she she needs to like make good on this. Yeah, she doesn't handle it at all. <laughs> I, I have no doubt that Clark genuinely wants to save Raven, but it's just that I don't think it matters who is the person being saved so long as she got this opportunity to square things with Bellamy. Yeah, I agree. Um, Clark and Bellamy, they're putting on their radiation suits, and Abby tells them they have 23 hours before the death wave, so it's 10 hours to the island and 10 hours back, which doesn't leave them a lot of room for error, but Clark says they'll be careful. So, does literally anyone at this point think that there isn't going to be an error? Like, I think she just sealed the deal right there, telling them how long they have back to, to get back to the bunker before the death wave comes. Oh, for sure. Like, you say we have 23 hours, it will now take 24. At least on the 100, it does. That's yeah. how it works. <laughs> Uh, Abby tells Clark that she loves her and Clark says this isn't goodbye because she's a nightblood now and maybe it worked. And I think it's really interesting how averse Clark is this season to saying goodbye. You know, she, um, she refused to say it to Bellamy on the beach that day in episode six and she's refusing to say it now um, because saying goodbye might push them down a path that Clark still can't imagine going on. And I, I, she's getting a little bit superstitious as we see here and then also with just her you know, unable to forget Abby's vision. So, um, this, this really, I, I guess I just wonder if she would regret not having told her mother she loved her if things don't go the way she planned. You know, like, I wonder if she would regret not saying goodbye at this point. Yeah, I think, I think you're right in that it's just like she has to live in that sort of denial because she can't go there mentally. Um, but also this is, this is my second piece of evidence that Abby had planned her death well in advance because despite how much Clark tries to avoid it this this really felt like a farewell scene to me for all intents and purposes Abby is saying goodbye and saying all the things to Clark she needs to hear before the end yeah I, I don't deny at all that it's it, it's crossed Abby's mind I still don't think she's quite decided on it yet but I do think that that's a factor in her goodbye here. Um, you know, she she also has been living in fear of this vision that she's had of Clark's death, and part of her still very much seems to believe that this is somehow going to come to pass. And having her daughter leave with only 23 hours before the death wave comes, it leaves a lot of room for things to happen in her mind, uh, you know, be it from Clark's end or from hers. I There's a part of me that thinks that Abby truly doesn't believe they'll see each other again. Yeah, I think that's fair. So Abby tells Clark to listen to her, saying that she once told Clark there were no good guys, but that's not true. There are. Clark is. Clark glances toward Bellamy, who still refuses to look at her, and also and asks if that's true, even though she didn't want to open the door. Abby says yes, there was no good choice, to which Clark replies that there never is. I love that she brings up the mention of good guys, um, because this was both Abby and Clark's biggest riff and most heartfelt reconciliation. And it's not only a way for Abby to impress upon Clark that she really is good after all, but also that Abby loves her no matter what. This was a really beautiful scene, and I, I loved this interplay between them. Yeah, that's a great point. And I love how you tied that into Abby's goodbye because, you know, it's like one last lesson from a mother to her daughter. I, it really, it wraps up that arc of theirs quite nicely and leaves room for a new journey that I think we're gonna take in the next few seasons. Well, if we get a few seasons, mm -hmm. <laughs> did I just curse it? Um, th this scene overall, it was one of the best of the whole season, in my opinion. You know, whenever we get Clark and Abby alone together, magic happens. <laughs> I, I, I particularly love how now, after everything, 
Abby is reminding Clark that there are good people because it forces Clark to stop looking at humanity like a problem she needs to fix, even at the expense of her own soul. It's it's reminding Clark, you know, again, that she doesn't need to make herself the bad guy to save other people because at her heart, she is a good person and she needs to remember that. And Clark has done horrible things, but she is a good person. And now that the world is ending, that's something that she, she really has to hold on to. Because, you know, this whole season... It's been about Clark separating herself out from the rest of humanity so she could, like, psychologically handle all the choices she had to make as a leader. But now that those choices have been made, I think this quote was a way to to kick off a new arc for Clark next season that will be much more personal and emotional that we've se- than, we've seen be- than we've seen from her before. Oh, I, I certainly hope so. I, I would be very interested in that. And I also love that throughout this scene, Bellamy is trying so hard not to look at her. He can totally feel her glancing at him for reassurance or something. But he's just, like, not ready to face her or give her the comfort she's, like, clearly craving. I mean, we've, like, never seen him this mad before. I don't even think he knows how to handle being this mad. Or being this close to her when he's this mad. (laughs) Um, So Murphy and Amori come in and ask if they can come along, hoping that it'll help their chances if they bring home the quote-unquote chosen ones. Uh, Abby says that she'll make sure Murphy's name is in the lottery, but as for Amori, Amori, she'll do the best that she can, which really means that, no, she will not be in the lottery. Mm Mm-hmm. And I love Murphy's use of the the quote-unquote chosen ones here because he is so aware of the fact that no matter what he does, no matter what Amori does, they, and you know, they did way more than uh, the chosen ones did in the bunker this season, he and Amori are never going to measure up in the eyes of Sky Crew. They are always going to be the leftover people. Yeah, it reminds me of the classic scenario where people have to pick teams in gym class and there's always the one or two people who are picked last no matter what. Like, that's Murphy, Murphy and Amori. To be fair, I, I think that Murphy and Amori probably aren't even playing the game for the most part. <laughs> they're, like, off in the gym, like, making out behind the bleachers or something. <laughs> I mean, like, but there is, like, always that one person that, like, they don't even want to be there. They're being forced to yeah. play, and they get picked last. That was me, by the way. If you couldn't tell, that was me. <laughs> um, so now we're going to follow the Kane and Jaha plotline now that they're kind of splitting up. So we see Kane tell the waiting Sky crew members that they're going to hold a lottery to choose who will survive in the bunker. Hardy says that the grounders won't be able to survive there without Sky crew running the tech, so they should have more spots. But Kane says that he doesn't like this any more than they do. Uh, like, and like the culling, some must die so the rest can survive. In this scene, Kane drives me nuts. Like, he actually uses the phrase, call upon our better angels. He's just completely divorced from the reality of the horror that these people are facing since he's not in the lottery. It's it's really, really apparent here that Kane has the emotional range of a teaspoon. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I, I do think he's completely missing the point in this scene. You know, he's telling everyone that he doesn't like it any more than they do, but he's not the one who's standing on the chopping block. Like, the people that he loves are safe. He is safe. And in the same way that Clark has separated herself out so much this season in her decision making Kane also appears to be doing this be it either to preserve his sanity or whether he really truly believes that he's suffering as much as they are I don't know Um, but the fact of the matter is if I were the rest of Sky Crew and Kane just stood in front of me making that speech I'd be rioting I'd be like throwing rotten fruit or something like screw this guy sitting on his throne up there and preaching to us how we should be behaving when it's our lives in the line not his you know oh me too and and I think this is why Hardy was the perfect choice as an audience surrogate here because as the viewer we can and do totally sympathize with a man 
who is a father and has to face the fact that he may not watch his son grow up. Like, that's a horrific reality, and no one should be expected to be in the mental state to accept what Cain is preaching in a logical or reasonable way. That's a great point, and I, I think that Hardy, he already lost most of his respect for Cain back in episode six when Cain tries to protect Ilian from the angry Sky Crew mob. Um, I, I just don't see Hardy and Kane really ever seeing eye to eye much. So I like that he's back challenging Kane again in this this last episode for him, sadly. Yeah, and, and definitely. And and you just made me think about, you know, how this show poses moral questions and the idea that there are no good guys or bad guys. They, uh, you know, they use Hardy as a vehicle to stir up tension. And in the first riot, you know, I wasn't really on his side. But now here, I can completely understand where he's coming from. It's a great evolution, and I, I love that the characters on this show, no matter how big or small, are never forced into like one-dimensional roles. They're always so versatile and often end up on both sides of a conflict before the end. Yeah, so true. Uh, unless unless you're Riley. <laughs> you're right. But, but they've made Hardy the antagonist, but not the villain, which is something that the show really excels in. Yeah, I think well it's great. Said. So Hardy asks if Nyla, a grounder, gets to take a sky, a sky Crew spot. And with that, a bunch of Sky Crew members grab Nyla and try to force her out of the bunker. Octavia comes in at this moment and, seeing this, rescues Nyla and tells the rest of them that Nyla gets to stay and now they have one less pot to fill. And when that crowd moved in on Nyla, I was about to, like, jump into my television screen and cut some people. Like, no one touches Nyla. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really wasn't worried. I, I don't know. I Again, maybe I just, like, live in denial that people never die on this show but I, I I was like watching this unfold and I was like all right I, I mean I, rough and tougher up and so it's gonna be okay <laughs> I wasn't like actually worried on the long-term sense but it was more like how dare like how dare you lay a hand on this perfect woman <laughs> like you know Kane's better angels that he's so fond of yeah you're looking at like a literal embodiment of one <laughs> <laughs> like actual human angel in grounder form um, I do think that Octavia's brand of control is 10 times more effective than Kane's. You know, it's brutal, but it works. And again, I have to say, she demonstrates a much clearer understanding of humanity and the mob mentality than I would have guessed. You know, it's, it's really refreshing. I mean, I, I guess it has to work because she has hundreds of soldiers to back her up, whereas Kane just has his better angels. Never letting that line go. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, and I mean, looking at this as pure instinct from Octavia, she doesn't have time to weigh the fact that she has an army. She just acts to do something to stop the riot. And her first instinct to threaten the few spots they have left is, is dead right. You know, I, I just think it was a really insightful moment from her, and I liked it. Kane is like the soft dad that always caves when his kids wants to stay up a little bit later to watch like another episode of TV or whatever. Um, Octavia, she's been hardened by everything she's been through and, and, sh and just having that conviction is enough to make people listen, I think. Yeah, true. She is like the mom. But like, the mean mom. The scary mom. My yeah. mom. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. <laughs> but you know it's true. Um, Jaha tells Octavia. <laughs> you know it's true too. <laughs> Jaha tells Octavia that she can stop this because she's Sky Crew. She's one of them. Octavia tells him that he made a that he made her hide under the floor. He floated her mother, but she's not hiding anymore. It's like big mistake, Jaha. Huge. Huge. <laughs> yeah, like, let's just remind Octavia of the first and foremost grudge in her life and then ask her to protect the very people who claimed that her existence was a crime. Smart move. Like, honestly, Jaha usually gets how to manipulate people better than this. Like, much better than this. Um, even though he hasn't been, you know, following her arc four seasons like we have, all he has to do is take one look at the girl, and it's pretty clear she doesn't consider herself to be Sky Crew, like, in the slightest. Maybe this was a way to demonstrate how desperate Jaha is at this point. You know, he's, like, actually lost the ability, temporarily, to manipulate people. 
Yeah. It, I mean, it, w- it was a bold move. And it backfired spectacularly. So uh, nice going there, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Octavia says that every clan has chosen their survivors, and if Sky Crew doesn't by midnight, then they all die. Seems a little excessive and like a little bit wasteful. I don't know. I like. I kind of get it. Like she needs a way to ensure that they don't riot, and this just worked before with Nyla, so you know. But like again, threaten all you want, but you can't actually do this because you need Sky Crew to run the bunker. So true. They, they just don't want to accept that They fact. really don't. They just pretend like that's not a thing. So uh, Nyla is tending her wounds, and when Octavia asks if she's okay, Nyla says that it's human nature to want to fight, but that she'll never forget what Octavia did for her. So, so you know you know that gift that gets passed around of, like, Mushu from Mulan rising from the ashes, like, I live! <laughs> that was me in this scene. Like, and all the joking that I do about Nyla and Octavia, which is a lot, I never honestly believed they would ever be a couple, but this scene totally leaves an opening. Like, I don't know if the writers are actually going to go in this direction, but, hey, if they're going to be in this bunker for at least five years... I'm just saying a lot can happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do really like the idea of them getting together. I think they could be a really great couple. And even if they just become close friends, which is another possibility, I am, like, all for that. I think Octavia really needs Nyla's calming influence in her life. And, and, and you know, vice versa, I think Octavia can feed Nyla, you know, some of her fire and, and weirdly, maybe some of her selfishness. Like, uh, I think Nyla could stand to be a little bit more selfish and take care of herself for others for once. Agreed. And I think that this sort of yin and yang of warrior and healer could be so interesting. I, I really like how they complement each other. Yeah. So fingers crossed for that. Yep. <laughs> Wouldn't hate it. Um, Indra pulls Octavia aside, saying that she's the champion and the new one crew looks to her. They'll do what needs to be done at her command. Octavia says she's no champion because she had to help. She had help from Roan and Ilian. She didn't do it on her own. To which Indra replies that no leader ever does. So, let's get into this here. Um, I have been practically chomping at the bit for episodes now to talk about where Octavia's arc is heading after she won the Conclave, but I made myself hold back until now. So, okay, let's begin. What have you got? I don't even know where to start because uh, I have a lot. So. So basically, it's looking like Octavia is going to be the new leader of the 13 clans, of this one crew. You know, like kind of like a commander, but not quite. And I honestly have some pretty mixed feelings about this. Um, First and foremost, I'm incredibly skeptical because I don't see Octavia as a leader. Like, she's an enforcer for sure, but I don't think that she really has the skills necessary to be a good leader, especially not now, you know. She's no Clark, she's no Kane, she's definitely no Bellamy. Um, And and I'm not sure how believable it's going to be for me to see her morph into a leader this next season, which looks to be where the writers are moving, and especially because we won't get to see it as much because there's going to be a time jump. Yeah. Uh, So what do you think? Um... I think I mostly agree with you um, in that until really the last two episodes, including this one, I've never seen Octavia show any signs of being capable of being a good leader. And I think the writers started planting these tiny specks of leadership qualities um, precisely to transition into this new role for her that we both foresee happening next season. I'm not sure if this transition will be effective. It's obviously too early to tell. But I think that you and I have talked about 
this a little bit outside of the podcast and we've discussed how both Bellamy and Clark are natural born leaders you know who are innately capable of leading by default and clearly like this does not describe Octavia um, but perhaps given the new position that she now finds herself in she will rely on others as Indra is suggesting um, to gain the experience and the wisdom to become a great leader and and I also think that it's a good sign that for her part at least Octavia seems very resistant to the idea of leading like this isn't something that she's ever wanted she's not in ambitious like that I think her reticence makes me hopeful that the writers will respect the character they've created and build upon that rather than taking her in a direction that doesn't fit and I I guess only time will tell what's that what's that quote from Harry Potter um I've been trying to think about it those who have leadership thrust upon them and find that they wear it well are the best kind of leaders or something like that I Mm -hmm. probably just butchered it um but Octavia has a long way to go before she can become a good leader but I do agree that it bodes well that she's willing to listen to her advisors like Indra um hopefully like Nyla I I like that Octavia has never wanted to be a leader and she now finds herself kind of randomly in charge of 1200 people and I also like seeing her genuinely like struggle with this you know struggle to make the kinds of decisions that Bellamy and Clark have made a hundred times over at this point Octavia's She's never really had to consider what it has been like for them because, you know, in many ways, she's been able to stand as, like, the voice of morality, like, especially in earlier seasons, not, not really as much in this season, um, because she didn't want to have the responsibility of that leadership. And and I'm curious to see what kind of leader she'll be uh, and discover herself to be, you know, whether she'll still be able to judge those who came before her at this point. Even people like Jaha, who she hates now, but um, she might eventually come to see that she might see him more clearly when she's standing when he's standing yeah maybe and you know I also I don't hate the symbolism of it all you know as the girl who literally came from nothing who was told she shouldn't even exist who's had to struggle and fight to survive actually end up leading an entire nation like that's a really powerful piece of development and representation that I could get behind and and it's not just leading her own nation but the girl who had no people has like created her own people and I saw a lot of people upset that Octavia was basically becoming the new commander right after we had that um, Clark's Care a few episodes back. But I genuinely don't see it like that. You know, no matter what people say, I still hold that Octavia is not Sky Crew. Like, she did not grow up in Sky Crew's world. She did not have their privilege. She had no people to belong to outside of Bellamy and her mother. And that's not enough for any human being, you know. It's human instinct to form societies and to create cultures. And Octavia was deprived of that. So she comes down to Earth and she finds people who, you know, lived their lives with such freedom that she's never had. And she envies that. So she, tra- she tries to um, to become them. And in some ways, she's accepted into their culture. But no matter how hard she tries, she's never really going to be a grounder either. Um, but when winning the Conclave, she realized that she doesn't need to be a grounder because to survive the apocalypse, obviously... They can't be on the ground, <laughs> so they can't remain Sky Crew and grounders. They have to become something else. They they have to to survive together, and to do that, they're going to have to unite. Um, and Clark tried to do this, but she failed. Octavia, on the other hand, was able to inspire this group of people, many of whom hate each other, to put aside that that hatred and become one crew. And I think that's in many ways because Octavia has shown them that she respects their traditions. Yes. And like, you know, not only respects, but but loves them in, in some ways. And so that's why they were able to listen to her over Clark. And now Octavia is no longer no one. Like she is one crew. And I think that's pretty cool. And I'm, I'm interested to see what those 1200 people are going to look like after five years of hardship, because I'm guessing it's going to be just a bit different from what we're used to. They're not grounders anymore. 
Yeah, I, I think it's going to look a little bit different. <laughs> and and you know what? Look, we're, we're defending Octavia from haters again. So everyone listening, <laughs> take a shot. <laughs> I, I mean, defending her in the sense of like, well, I get why people don't like her, but I still see her in the middle of a very intense series arc. And I, for one, am really interested to see her finish that arc. And that then I will judge at that point. Um, but until then, she's not even remotely done baking yet. So No, her, her cookie is still dough. Or it's like that, that like warm, like gushy dough cookie hybrid after it's been in the oven for a few minutes. The most delicious phase. Uh, so are we saying that she can only go down from here then? <laughs> no, no, just despite the way we've overused this metaphor, people aren't cookies. I'm hopeful that she has plenty of room to get better and better. <laughs> people aren't cookies, quote unquote. Words of wisdom from the Skycraft crew. <laughs> <laughs> Always here to help. <laughs> um... So a Sky Crew is putting their names in the lottery. So Miller puts his name in, but when Papa Miller comes in and turns in his slip, we see that he's written Miller's name too to give Miller his best chance at the lottery. This was the purest thing in the world, and I love Papa Miller. He gets best dad award of all time. We don't deserve you, Papa Miller. And I'm still living in like the self-righteous fury at the nerve of the chosen ones for not just like giving Miller a spot because the boy has been through enough. Uh, and he's just found happiness on screen with Jackson. Uh, so I need that to continue, although preferably much more on screen than it is now. Um, yeah. I, I do love how this more so than anything, than anything else calls back to the culling for me. You know, with that dad who volunteered to die to give his daughter more oxygen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was brutal. Um, I, I also appreciate that we get a nice range of paternal instincts in this episode. Like, Hardy is a dad who has a very young son, so it, it makes sense that he would feel the injustice of this and want to fight. Whereas Papa Miller has watched his son grow into manhood and just wants to give him the best chance he can. You know, he's accepted that his job as a father is, is done, and Nate is going to be okay eventually. Yeah. Papa Miller. I love you. With all my heart. Um... <laughs> After Papa Miller leaves, Kane tells Abby that it's not her fault because she did what she thought was right. Abby says that they do what they think is right and 364 people die. When Kane reminds her that she'd saved so many others, including himself, she doesn't know who she is anymore and tells him that when the bunker door closes, she won't be inside. And look, I don't ask for a lot. We rarely get a ship on the show that doesn't end in pure and utter tra tragedy. <laughs> um, so why can't Kane and Abby just be happy? Oh, I feel like I, we saw this coming from a mile away. You know, despite the fact that Abby is the best doctor and should remain alive purely for the health and survival of others, I was really pleased, you know, from a character development point of view, that emotionally Abby could not bear the idea of remaining alive while others were forced to die. After everything she's done this season, Abby doesn't really like who she's become and definitely doesn't feel worthy of living. I, I think this makes perfect sense for her character arc, and I can see how she got here. Yeah... But in the same way that people keep ignoring the fact that Skyker is going to be running the entire bunker, I can't take this seriously because it's ridiculous for one of the two doctors to consider herself expendable. And it's also ridiculous that Kane didn't even try that argument. You know, like Jackson might be a great doctor, but he can't handle 1,200 people by himself. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I, I think that would have actually won her over in the end if Kane had brought it up. I mean, she's considered essential personnel for a reason. I mean, even if she had just stayed for Jackson's sake, you know, like it, it, it's it's an organic mental space for her to be in right now. And I get that. But I am also too logical to take this seriously. So this didn't quite sit right with me. But that aside, I, I did also want to bring up the fact that Kane genuinely believes that Abby saved him, like saved his soul. And I do think that Abby's unwavering mental strength 
and determination in seasons one and two, you know, forced him to consider his own beliefs. But I, I honestly don't think Kane is giving himself enough credit. I don't see him as having become the person he is now because of Abby. I think it's because of everything that he's been through and, and seeing the consequences of the things that he's done. They've gradually shaped them, shaped him into a softer, wiser person. And I don't want that attributed solely to romance, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I think that, as you said, Kane isn't who he is because of Abby, but rather Abby is now with Kane because of who he has become, and she's come to love that person. Yeah, that's the perfect way to put it. And I've ragged on Kane a bit in this episode, and maybe a bit in this season in general, but I've absolutely loved following his arc from season one to now. It's been incredibly powerful to watch. He's just such a fantastic character. He's so deeply flawed and so deeply human. Agreed. And and Kane really is the perfect example of how this show only deals in great characters because, like Murphy, he really started in this show as a villain and they've transitioned him into a protagonist so beautifully and smoothly and it's been amazing to watch. Yeah. So Hardy asks Jaha to look after his son if Hardy's name isn't called in the lottery. Jaha says they shouldn't be lining up to die, they should be fighting. And he tells Hardy that if he can get the grounders to open the doors again, he can save all of their people today. So Jaha's very clearly not ready to give up yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I, I actually really do understand where Jaha is coming from, but I feel like his power and sway over Sky Crew... Um, would have been better served easing these already fraught tensions and helping Kane, who clearly needs it, um, rather than adding more fuel to the fire. I think regardless of how he feels, and it's clear he's very upset that many of his people will die, at this point, a peaceful transition is the most these people can hope for, and he's just not helping. So again, Jaha is annoying me. I totally agree. I I was thinking earlier that Jaha would have done a better job in Kane's place uh, this episode than Kane has done himself. Um, Jaha has a particular talent of playing a crowd that Kane just like doesn't possess. And in this situation, that's really what was needed. I have a hard time blaming Jaha in this episode because I do understand the drive of wanting to save people you care about over random strangers. Like, that's, like, human instinct. Uh, and, and Jaha worked so hard to find the solution for his people only to have that stolen right from under him. I, I genuinely get it. And, and like you said, it, it's not helping. You know, riling people up right now, it's not going to help anybody. It's just going to get people killed and Kane reminds him that later in this episode so he's not annoying me but he's not approaching this in the right way <laughs> no so we see Kane calling names in the lottery okay before you get before you get into this I just have to say did anybody else have a problem when Pei Chao's name was called and he didn't volunteer his spot away like first of all you're old as hell let one of the young ones take your spot you lived your life Hell, your own daughter is standing right <laughs> next to you. I have a hard time believing that you'd choose your own life over your own child's. It's ridiculous. Second of all, if they're going to have an age limit to save kids under a certain age, then they should definitely have a cap of citizens over a certain age not to be included in the lottery. Like, this whole thing just, like, really pissed me off. I mean, I do think that gets scarily into eugenics territory. But, to be fair, only 100 of them get to live, and I guess if they want to give people the best chance of surviving and thriving after the five years are up, they probably should take care of people that they're picking. I mean, we crossed the line into eugenics territory the second Clark made the list TM, and we cross it again at the end of this episode when they end up using it, so I feel like if you're going to go there, just do it. I mean, that's true, but that's why people are angry. Um, It doesn't make Clark any less right. She just went about it the wrong way and then, 
wasn't able to defend herself at all. Yeah, I mean, it's not pleasant, but I, I just, I still cannot believe that this old geezer is going to sacrifice his own daughter so that he can live for, like, another four years and die of old age. Yeah, that wasn't cool, Paige out, but uh, maybe we should give him the benefit of the doubt. Like, he would have traded places with his daughter if her name hadn't been called. I mean, fine, but I just, <laughs> I don't see any parent, like, not immediately giving their child the best chance once you realize you have at least one spot to claim. Like, that seems like a weird choice. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to let this go. Lotteries, man. Dark. Very They're the dark. worst. So Nate's name is called, and he and Jackson hug, but then Nate tells Papa Miller that he won't stay if his dad's name isn't picked. But Papa Miller says that Nate will get to rebuild the world and that it will be wonderful. It's like this show is trying to kill me. This made me so emotional. I just love this man, and I'm going to miss him so much. On, like, a completely separate note, because I, I can't talk about Papa Miller without wanting to burst into tears, I think I did cry, like, several times in this episode because oh, yeah. of him. Um, I can't figure out if Nate and Jackson are meant to be in a romantic relationship yet. Like, the hug between them felt weirdly, like, bro-y to me, not romantic. And I felt the same thing about uh, Miller's interactions with Brian back, like, last season and even early this season. So it makes me wonder if Jared Joseph just isn't that good at romantic acting. I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm pretty sure they'll be, like, together when we see them next season, but... I'm hoping that their relationship is going to feel more loving and organic because as of right now, I, I just don't see that. Yeah, I actually had the same thought, but I, I think given from what we saw in episode nine, there's supposed to be like something romantic at this point. I think you're right that Jared just might not have, or he actually just like might have a hard time playing romance because this is the same complaint we both had during their scenes um, with Jonathan Whitesell, who played Brian. Yeah. So Jaha nods at Hardy and he leaves the room, which Kane sees and follows. Hardy gets in front of the crowd and says that Jaha has a plan to save them. They just have to stick together and follow his lead when the doors open. Abby tries to stop him, but Hardy says he won't be led to the slaughter without a fight. And with that, the room devolves into chaos. I think this is all the evidence we needed to show that Jaha's plan was chaotic at best, deadly at worst. And that's all I have to say about this. I mean, Jaha's desperate, and desperation will do that to a person's planning skills. Um, I'm actually surprised that Skyker held it together for this long, because they're kind of prone to fits and rioting when things don't happen their way. Uh, at least that's what we've seen on the ground. Mm -hmm. I do wonder if them being in the bunker is actually kind of forcing them back into arc mode psychologically, you know, back when, like, one wrong move will get you floated. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point that you make. You know, given the fact that they, they did seem to hold out for so long, do you think that if Jaha hadn't planted these seeds of rebellion that they would have held out like Kane was hoping for? Or was it like only a matter of time before a, the time bomb went off? My answer to this is always my answer to this. That there's always going to be people or at least one person who will not go along with what the rest is doing. And in a situation like this, one person, like Hardy, can turn into very many very quickly. So, yes. I do think someone would have gotten upset and caused a problem eventually. Yeah, I do too. So Kane finds Jaha and asks what he's doing, and Jaha says he didn't find the bunker so they could kill themselves in it. He was going to gas the grounders, then threatened to destroy the crops unless they made room for all of Sky Crew. So what do you think about this plan? Like, could they have just gassed the grounders and carried some of them outside the bunker and just left them there? Um, because it's clearly what they end up doing to Sky Crew, and that seems to work, so... I mean... I very much do not like this plan, um, but that's because I don't particularly respect Jaha or his notion that Sky Crew deserves more room simply because he found the bunker. I understand his mentality here. I really do. I, I just don't agree with it, and I think that's because I'm watching this and I'm not in it. Um, and, I, and I get that. I think at this point, given the level of desperation 
and Jaha's ability to manipulate, you know, they would have absolutely gone through with this. Yeah, you know, to put into perspective Jaha's belief that Sky Crew deserves more room because he found the bunker, it seems to me comparable to someone like opening their house to people looking for safety, and then those people kick out half of his family. Like, I, I do understand the notion, and I can even respect it, but at this point, Jaha's, he's got to give it up. Like, it's too late. I, I think that they could have gassed the grounders and selectively, selectively removed some of them, but I also think that it would have, I mean, obviously bred some ill will in the bunker when the grounders woke up and, you know, half of their people were gone. Um, ultimately, if that had happened, I think not being united inside the bunker when the doors closed could potentially have some sort of infighting that could have killed everyone inside. Totally. And I, I think that it would have been the wrong move for all of the reasons that you just listed. Um, but I do think that if Kane wasn't able to stop Jaha here, the crowd would have gone through with Jaha's plan for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, it's still easier for Kane and Jaha to think about this logically because neither of them are in danger here. People outside are fighting for their lives, which will never mesh with logic. They, they totally would have gone through with Jaha's plan, and I'm sure that it would have doomed everyone eventually, one way or another. So. Absolutely. Indra says they found Sky, the Sky Crew armory, and she needs Octavia to give her orders. And Octavia says to pass out the guns. I've said this like six times now in this episode, probably, but I still can't get over the fact that Octavia really seems to be under this belief that she can kill all of Sky Crew if she needs to. Like, it doesn't matter what you told them, you still need them. I, I, I don't know what would have happened if she went in there in that room and Sky Crew was rioting. It's really scary to think about, right? Because really the fate of humanity is on the line here, which adds even more external pressure to Jaha and Kane's conversation, even though they don't know it, um, but we know it. And I'm not sure if Octavia would have gone through with it, but she has demonstrated multiple times over the show how good she is at compartmentalizing really unpleasant tasks when she deems them, quote-unquote, necessary. So who knows? You know, maybe she would have gone through with it after all. I actually think she would have gone through with it, and she would have killed them all, and then she would have realized that no one else knew how to run the bunker, and they'd all die, which would have been pretty unfortunate. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> that would have sucked. So Kane asks Jaha how many of them will have to die to... Uh, to finish Jaha's plan, and Jaha says as many as it takes. He tells Kane that the time for diplomacy is over, but Kane begs him, saying Jaha has saved 1,100 grounders. He saved humanity by finding this bunker, but if he does this, he's taking every bit of that salvation back. This is Jaha's moment. Jaha hears people outside chanting and asks how they would even stop them. I think this word salvation that Kane uses is so important in this scene. Really, everything that's happening here and Jaha's ultimate decision to back down comes from Kane evoking the idea of salvation. You know, it's something that Jaha has been striving towards for seasons now. His dogma is what drives him, and sometimes, I mean, like a lot of the time, you know, this pushes him to make decisions that actually pull him farther away from the very thing that he really wants, and that's to feel worthy again. And Kane is a master diplomat, and he's also one of Jaha's oldest friends. I don't think it's a coincidence that he brings up the idea of Jaha's salvation, and nor do I think it negates the bond of their friendship that he's willing to say whatever he needs to say in order to get Jaha to come around here you know this this scene was so satisfying for me and it really felt earned when Jaha finally came around precisely because of how they wrote this dialogue for the first time this episode and one of the few times this season in fact Kane is truly able to reach someone here like it's all he really wants to do and that makes this as much Kane's moment as Jaha's, like as you were saying with him, like being very specific in his word choice, um, word choice here and, and the kinds of he's using the kind of language that he knows would reach Jaha, who just wants some sort of, 
you know, divine forgiveness for the bad things that he's done in the past and for the way that he's made his people suffer in, in various ways. Um, he's considered this bunker as salvation, not just for his people, but for himself. And to have that taken away has crushed him. But I'm, I'm so glad in the end that he made the right choice and did what would save the most people, even if it was hard. Yeah, agreed. Octavia stands in front of the door where Skycrew waits on the other side. Indra says that she'll do this for her, but Octavia tells her that it's her people, so it's her responsibility, and she gives the order to open the door. So, how did the uh, my people, my responsibility land for you? This is a trick question because you already know <laughs> that I, I think But they land- don't know. <laughs> I think it landed badly. Um, I just, I don't see the correlation between Bellamy feeling responsible for this human he's practically raised from birth to Octavia, Octavia feeling responsible for a group of people who never accepted her and condemned her very existence. You know, I, I can appreciate that this is a hugely difficult thing for Octavia to do. And in that, in this moment, she's thinking of the one person who has always shown strength and fortitude in the face of huge moral dilemmas like this um and she invokes the one phrase that she associates with bellamy you know who in turn uses this phrase to describe his love for her so i think that the idea that she's drawing strength from bellamy's words more than anything else is what is playing out here but again it felt a little contrived and it it didn't i don't think it hit the right note yeah it it landed really poorly for me as well at least the first time given that i agree with everything you just said but um I, i i just didn't see the connection here either But the more I considered this, I will say that I do like the idea that Octavia is now, you know, she's starting to realize everything Bellamy has done for her, and she's finally starting to respect that sacrifice. And at first, using these words kind of felt to me like she was taking something that was intrinsically Bellamy and twisting it to her own purposes. But but now that I'm thinking about it more, I'm wondering if it's more like she's honoring Bellamy. Like, now that she has found herself randomly the leader, I think she might be trying to imitate what better leaders have done before her. Yeah, that makes sense. When the grounders walk in, they see Kane and Jaha have gassed all of Skycrew. Kane takes off his mask and says that this is how they will save their people. But from the look on his face, you can tell that this is going to come at a high cost to his conscience. Um, it's an act that I think will probably haunt him for the rest of his life. And it makes me wonder how he will go about finding his humanity again when he has, you know, assured everyone around him that, 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 that they will eventually. Yeah, I agree. I This is just rough and... Uh, Jaha asks how they choose now that the lottery has failed, and Kane says they already have. Clark's list, which was always their best chance at survival. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) And Chekhov's gun has now gone off twice. You know, (sighs) first when the list TM was originally discovered by Jasper, and now when it is actually being used for its intended purpose. I knew this was coming, and I do like that the 100 doesn't discard these major plot points from mid-season, but actually brings it all together to round everything out. It, It was really nice. Ah, the list. (laughs) I didn't miss it. I just won't die. (laughs) I'm glad we finally used it, though, because it's been hanging around our necks all season, and I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop, honestly. I mean, it wasn't hanging around my neck. I'd, like, way moved past at this point. Uh, That feels like a year ago. Um, But I I will agree that the show doesn't usually throw things away for plot devices, and this list appeared to be a plot device when we first saw it. Uh, But no, if Clark makes a list... I should have expected that it would be used by the end of the season, as it is clearly being used now. Yeah, we should have known. (laughs) Um, Again, I like the fact that they're making the 100 feel relevant again. You know, the symbolism did not escape me. Oh, and one image in this scene that really stood out to me in filming um, was when Octavia is standing in, like, a middle 
She's in the middle of the sea of gas sky crew, so there's like a bunch of bodies, and she's staring at old Second Dawn banner that's kind of like hanging from the ceiling that says, from the ashes we will rise. And it really brought that slogan around full circle in that moment, and the visual of her standing there among the, who seems like dead, really, was incredibly dark and disturbing uh, and it just goes to show that we've set up a long long climb for the next five years in the bunker absolutely that's that's a great point and I, I also think that this image of all these like lifeless bodies was a great vehicle for the writers to show us what the carnage will look like since we wouldn't get to see that from the outside of the bunker um it was so powerful um just to get to see what this kind of sacrifice looks like and they they didn't try to hide it and I liked it yeah, sure. It was like it was like giving literal faces to the sacrifice because it's hard to really comprehend that kind of loss until we actually see it. And this scene did a fantastic job portraying that level of horror and devastation. Mm-hmm. So grounders are helping carry out sky crew bodies out of the bunker, judging by Clark's list. Papa Miller is taking out, but Kane tells them that Miller stays. And I absolutely love this moment because I, I highly doubt Miller was on Clark's list. Like, I mean, if Monty wasn't on the list, Miller wasn't on the list. Mm. Uh, but after Papa Miller's sacrifice, Kane just couldn't let Miller die. Like, he had to honor that. Yes, I loved this. It, it felt like such a small act of power that Kane needed to do for himself after gassing everyone. Yeah, for his sanity. Yep. Uh, Abby is almost carried out, but Kane says that she stays, and he bends over her sleeping body and asks her to forgive him. And I wonder if we're going to see any fallout from Kane's decision here, because I, I mean it's the right decision because Abby's the head doctor and they really actually need her. Uh, but he's also taking away her agency in this moment. So, um, do you, do you think she'll be able to forgive him for that? I hope so. I, I hope that once Abby realizes just how necessary she is to the survival of everyone, not just guy crew, that she'll understand why he did what he did. I'm just not sure how long that will take. Yeah, I, I do think she'll come around eventually, but um, there's part of me that thinks that it won't be for a long time. Like, I, I could see it going either way. Either we return after the time jump and all is well, or we return after the time jump and the two are completely estranged. Um, and for both of their sakes, I really hope the latter is not the case because they need each other. They really do. They do, and, and I hope they figure it out. So Hardy is carried out, but his son is left behind, and Jaha picks him up to care for him. And perhaps... You know, after all this time, Jaha has been looking for salvation in the wrong place. I, I, I'm wondering if maybe caring for this boy and protecting him in a way that he didn't protect Wells is going to be his true salvation. We, you know, we've been told by now that um, Isaiah Washington won't be a series regular next season, and I thought that meant that he was going to be killed off. But I really love the idea that he's finally just, like, accepted what he can't change and is just off somewhere being a dad. Me too. I am actually really looking forward to seeing how this little boy changes Jaha. And I'm really interested to see what Jaha as a parent looks like again. You know, that's the best version of Jaha we've ever seen. So this can only be positive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I actually, I'm not entirely convinced we'll even see much of Jaha after this. He might just like fade into the background in the same way that Brian did. Perhaps, you know, it's this show's way of giving him a good send off without actually killing him, which is their usual method. Maybe. And I mean, I think, you know, I would be fine with that. I mean, I would also be fine with that. So <laughs> great. <laughs> So let's uh, let's wrap up the bunker plotline and move on to the Clark and Bellamy extravaganza. Yeah, let's do it. Clark and Bellamy and those other people. <laughs> Who cares? Um, so as they prepare to leave, Bellamy asks Murphy what he and Amoria are really up to. You know, uh, Murphy and Amoria just volunteered to come on the trip with them. 
Murphy says that Bellamy killed them when he opened the door, and that he and Amori are going to be on the bunker on that island, where they probably won't survive, but at least won't be, you know, fried in the death wave. So seeing Bellamy's face when Murphy tells him that he basically killed Murphy and Amori, like, wow, Bob Morley, he can act. <laughs> we say this often, but he can really act. Um, Bellamy, you know, volunteered on this trip specifically because he didn't want to have to stick around and watch people he killed, you know, quote unquote, by uh, opening the door to the grounders. And yet now he has this like whole trip with Murphy and Amori that he has to take. And in some ways that has to be even worse because even if he isn't exactly friends with either of them, he knows at least Murphy pretty intimately. Like they've been through a lot together for better, mostly for worse. Mm. Um, and now that Murphy is telling him to his face that he's going to die because of Bellamy, all of Bellamy gets to live just because he's like the important person in charge. It's a really great moment for both of them. Uh, and in the last episode too, we had Bellamy telling Murphy that he'd never change, that he'd always only care about himself. And yet here we have Murphy abandoning his chance at surviving in the bunker to go die with Amori. And I think this is the first time Bellamy really sees Murphy for the person that he's become, which really makes the fact that he, you know, doomed Murphy even more difficult. Yes, that's so true. Um, and to add to that, I love that Murphy... Burfy? Burfy? Is that their, their ship name? I'm going to make it their ship name. <laughs> We're doing it. Um, I love that Murphy tells Bellamy that they can't all be essential personnel. It, it's another way of saying that he and Amori aren't the chosen ones. But this word essential is so interesting to me. Like, just by saying it, it promotes the idea that Murphy and Amori are essential. You know, they're essential to each other. And you can see that Murphy is absolutely desperate at this point to prolong her life as well as his own for as long as he can. And, you know, we quibble about which side of Murphy kind of takes on each of his decisions that he makes. You know, it's like, is it the ever-growing sensitive Murphy? and um, Or is it the purely survivalist Murphy? But in this scene, I think it's clear that Murphy's softer side is winning. As you said, um, he gave up his one and only chance to survive to be with Amori. Yes, I totally agree. And I also think we have to mention the interesting point that Bellamy is now on the other side of things. Like he has grown up his entire life being expendable. And suddenly I think it's only now occurring to him that he is like essential personnel. And that must be like such a weird feeling. Yeah. I think it's the same for Amori too. She's always been outsider. She's always been for Drina. Like she's never had anybody value her for, and, and be the most important person in someone else's life. Like she is to Murphy. And that like some sort of symbiotic relationship is why they are so adorable yeah. and beautiful and I love them so as Murphy and Bellamy leave we zoom in on Echo who's hiding in the background watching them and like dude this was totally creepy I did not see who it was the first time I watched this we actually had to go back later on and like look at it again because we were like what was that random person yeah. doing sitting there I, this totally freaked me out uh, you know who it, like weirdly looked like to me you know that man from season two who was like in the bushes who's um he was like a freak drena which we didn't know at the time but i'm guessing that's who he was he's just like creepily watching them from the bushes and then we never saw him again yeah Do you remember that? i have like a vague memory of that but i will just repeat that like this really freaked us out when we watched this yeah it was really creepy oh my god i hated it <laughs> <laughs> um but it was just echo <laughs> yeah, i didn't even think of the fact that it was echo like it was we... like it was like the weird interplay of the shadows on her face that made her look like a monster. It was like terrifying, you know? Yeah, yeah. It really didn't look like her at all. Uh, so Amori and Murphy are riding in the back of the rover, and Amori says that it felt good to be safe because she's never felt that way before, as you said, mm -hmm. uh, like she had a home. But Murphy tells her that her home is with him. Oh my god, this line just killed me. <laughs> true love, guys. True love. <laughs> 
I feel like we've covered this, um, but I just have to say very briefly how much I shaped this ship. <laughs> they are both so damaged and so self-hating. Watching them learn to love each other and like allow someone else to love them back is just the most heartwarming thing ever. I will never get tired of them. Yeah. 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 They're, I mean, they're both like so sketchy and yet so damn cute and this this is a ship that's built to last guys <laughs> well maybe i shouldn't have said that yeah, because i feel like that. when i say that half of the ship dies in the next few episodes no, please, please don't say that <laughs> um so bellamy is driving and he's like refusing to look at clark uh brief interlude by the way to laugh about the fact that they've probably been driving for at least a few hours in like the coldest silence of all time yeah it's like sub-zero temperatures in this truck the fact that Clark has held out this long with Bellamy, like, icing her out is pretty impressive, honestly. Like, as for Bellamy, we all see what usually happens when he's mad at her. It's like that time um, on the beach in season three when she comes over to him and he was all like, I don't need you. And then two seconds later, he was, like, pouring his heart out to her. <laughs> like, I don't even know. I didn't know Bellamy, ha- Bellamy had it in him to be that mad at Clark for that long. Like, I'm impressed, Bellamy. Me neither. I would have lost that bet. <laughs> uh, so, so, Yeah. At this point, <laughs> Britt and I couldn't figure out how to intelligently recap this scene because every line of dialogue is very important to us. So we've decided to do a dramatic reenactment of the scene to really like drive home the angst. Uh, in my debut role, I will be playing the role of Bellamy and Britt will be playing the role of Clark. Yeah, it's it's clear that, you know, we this has been a long season and Sarah and I are at our wits end here <laughs> and also as a brief disclaimer in regard to sarah and my friendship i am definitely the bellamy and she is definitely the clark <laughs> that's true um as another brief disclaimer liberties have been taken with the text only slight there's only slight there's some artistic license that you're about to hear <laughs> so with that we commence okay the curtain opens the scene begins We focus in on our two heroes, only the sound of the engine breaking the silence. The woods outside are quiet, dead, just like most of the people in this world are about to be. Bellamy, who's really put a valiant effort in staying angry for this long, finally breaks. Clark, why did you come on this mission? I really, really, really need you to not be mad at me anymore. Also, Raven's my friend too, I guess. Yesterday, you were fine with leaving Raven to die, and also with literally jumping me in a dark alley and dragging me into the bunker. I am not surprised to be one. I wasn't fine with it, and you know that, and I think of you more than just my trophy husband. You know I love you for more than just your body. Bellamy rolls eyes so intently that you can hear the eyeballs sliding around in their sockets. Bellamy, I never meant to shoot a gun in your general direction and then threaten to kill you. Well, then shooting a gun in my general direction and threatening to kill me was an interesting way to approach the problem. I mean, I didn't hit you. That's because you have really bad aim. No matter what I do, it's always the wrong thing. I am so tired of you always judging me. Why can't you just support me? You always make it about you. You're right. I need to stop being so sensitive. You're 100% forgiven. We're totally platonic bros again. I flirt so aggressively with Clark that he literally kills someone. (laughs) And And scene. Yeah, I feel like we've really captured the essence of this scene. Oh my god, I really hope no one is listening to this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You guys, we're like a month late for episode 12. Uh, It's clear we're getting pretty loopy. But as far as we're concerned, that was a direct clip from the episode. Yeah, honestly, like, this was... I think this was like a piece of interpretive art that speaks for itself. <laughs> Our favorite part was when Bellamy ran over a human after staring at Clark for too long. Classic Bellamy. Classic move. 
Oh, darn. Uh, okay. <laughs> We're moving on now. <laughs> Can we get back to recapping? Um, <clears throat> so, after Willem, kills someone, he gets out of the rover to check the damage, and they all get attacked by a group of grounders. Uh, one grounder starts, like, choking Amori, but before he can go any further, our shining hero rides in on horseback and saves the... Oh, wait! It's Echo. Huh. Guess she's helping us this episode. I just... <laughs> I can't. <laughs> so, basically... Echo, like, wants them to like her, so she'll let them tag along, which honestly kind of works. So, like, nice job playing those people like a fiddle, Echo. Um, but I'm a little surprised that Bellamy just, like, lets her come after he just strangled her, like, what, yesterday? Uh, but who's counting? You know, not me. <laughs> yeah, I'm still not commenting on this. Let's return to Echo in the finale because I don't want Brit to, like, burst a blood vessel over here trying to hold it all in. Thank you. We've already had, like, 12 discussions about it, so <laughs> today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. Okay. So Clark gives Echo the spare radiation suit, and Echo tells her that Rowan banished her. Echo says she was only trying to save her people and asks if that was so wrong, and at that, Clark realizes that she has more in common with Echo than she ever expected. And this was a fantastic scene, and I'm really, really glad the show decided to show this connection. I think in episode 10, you and I both discussed Echo's motivations in trying to save her people and compare that to the lengths that Clark will go to and, you know, has gone to this season. Um, so their discussion here, it just really puts into perspective, you know, both of their characters and where their mindsets have been this season. And it allows both of them to take a good look at the people they've become as well, especially Clark. Oh, I agree. I, I love this exchange. And when I see something like this, you know, where the writers deliver a complicated set of emotions and personal beliefs, you know, for both Clark and Echo, I get a, I get really, really annoyed that we haven't seen more of this throughout the season, um, especially for Echo, because they can clearly do this and do it well. You and I have talked about how this sh this wasn't really Echo's season after all, and, and how it seems from this that it's more likely that we'll get a lot more development from Echo next season. Overall, I'm just, I'm a little disappointed that we haven't seen as many pieces of development like this during season four. Yeah, I, you know, there's a lot that I wanted from Echo this season that I didn't get, um, but we'll definitely get into that more next episode, too. Um, as far as this scene goes, I actually found it to be Echo's most powerful scene yet. You know, it, it was really quick, but it packed a punch. Agreed. This was so powerful, and, and I love the way this tiny piece of dialogue seems to reverberate themes from this entire season and really challenge the way that we think about Echo and Clark, both as individuals and in relation to each other. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. <laughs> Good. Um, so Bellamy asks Monty if he can come to pick them up, since their rover is dead and Monty's rover is not. <laughs> um, Monty looks to Harper, who says that they need to save their friends, and Monty tells her that he loves her. And I'm, like, slowly starting to hop on board this train, like, like very slowly, but it's happening. Yeah, I just, I never disliked Harper, so, like, her loyalty the, to the gang here is, is not some, like, revelatory piece of development that, like, really promotes any more warmth towards her for me. Like, I'm on board the train, mostly still for the sake that Monty, like, loves her and I want Monty to be happy. <laughs> um, and as he says himself, he loves her, you know, so I guess that will have to be good enough for me. I mean, I, I definitely never disliked Harper. It's it's more that I still don't really care much for her either way. Uh, but I am hoping that they'll continue working on their development, on her development next season, not just, like, with Monty, but, like, her as a person. Um, because I really want to feel a connection to her, 
but for some reason I still don't so well I think it's because like you just said you know we really haven't gotten anything from her that isn't directly connected to her relationship to Monty we need a solid storyline that is Harper centric something that doesn't feel like it's like what's going on with her is really for the sake of Monty's arc and I hope that this is something that we get next season you know it's time yeah you know Harper is one of those characters who makes me want to go back and like rewatch earlier seasons specifically take another look at her because she's someone that I didn't give much thought to until last season so it's very possible that I just like missed a lot of background development from her that would make her feel more well-rounded to me um but to give her the benefit of the doubt I I I will say that I do think her leaving Lewis to die this season was a storyline just for Harper something that you know she didn't it didn't relate to Monty at all and and I love that um and I, I, I do love that, like, although she chose to save herself instead of Lewis, she's now choosing to risk her life and Monty's life saving the rest of their friends. And I, I so I can see that development. I can follow that through. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think I just view the Lewis decision as sort of a subplot or a complementary plot to Monty's emotional arc this season, um, you know, where both of the people he loves the most can't reciprocate due to their own issues. Um, and while I do agree that Harper's mini arc was very well written, it, it still feels subsequent to Monty's larger storyline. I get that. I get that. Um, Amore starts coughing up blood, and they realize she's been exposed because her suit broke during the fight with the Grounders. Murphy says they have another suit, Echoes, who would have just taken it from them if the opportunity hadn't arose to quote-unquote save them. And, you know, I think this is a great point for Murphy because I, too, was wondering what the hell Echo would have done if Bellamy hadn't crashed the car because he was staring at Clark. Like, I'm pretty sure Murphy has it right. Um, I think Echo would do what she needs to do to survive. So Totally. And, and I love that Murphy is the one who realizes this. It totally makes sense for his character to not accept her altruism at face value and question her ulterior motives while all the other chosen ones are, like, ready to accept her, her help without question. Yeah, John, it takes one to know on Murphy, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it seems like you were thinking, like, kind of along the same lines as Murphy here, but I really wasn't. I was, like, just watching all of this unfold, and I was like, wow, thank you, Echo. <laughs> like, what would we have done without you? Thank God you were here. You're such a Bellamy. <laughs> I am. And when Murphy finally says that, I was like, oh, my God, that is such a good question. You are so smart, Murphy. <laughs> like, it really did not occur to me at all. Oh, it's been a long season, guys. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> Um, so Murphy says he's not letting Amori die to save Echo, and Clark says she isn't either, and she takes off her suit. Bellamy, like, freaks out a bit at this, saying her nightblood is untested, but Clark says they're testing it now. You know, Bellamy, I could use a break from keeping you alive, Blake, everyone. Yeah, really. I really, really love this, you know, simply because I like that it calls back to the moment in the lab when Clark chooses to inject herself with the nightblood to spare Amori from being experimented on. And as we see here, this wasn't a fluke or a moment of weakness from Clark. That This is who she is fundamentally. And when presented with an almost identical choice, she chooses again to spare Amori and test herself. And it was it was a really, really brilliant piece of writing. Yeah, that's a great connection you just drew and one that I didn't even think of. Um, but you're right. Like, in this episode, I was genuinely worried. In the episode that um, Clark injects herself, yeah. I was I was worried then that she would make a decision that, she, that would mean that she was no longer, like, the Clark that we love. But she didn't. And she's clearly now back on her, like, self-sacrificial kick, which honestly is, like, the best Clark. Um, although for this scene, I think we've all known that, you know, since Clark was the one injected with Nightblood, there was going to come a time when that would have to be tested, even though Abby broke the uh, radiation chamber. It's still going to come out another way. And, um, of course, it's going to work because, you know, 
it's Clark and she's not going to die. So unlike Bellamy, I had no fear for Clark at this point. No, the fact that it was Clark actually ensures that it will work simply because they will never kill her. At least not until the series finale. But then all bets are off. Except for Raven, who never will die. <laughs> but I digress. Um, we, we see Raven, speak of the devil, uh, waiting in Becca's bunker. There's only 11 hours left until the death wave hits. And back in the forest, Pelamy tells Clark that they missed their window to go get Raven. But Clark asks that they're just supposed to return to Polis and leave Murphy and Amori to die. My answer to this is no, because they're my OTP and I refuse to allow them to suffer any longer. I'm done with that. Yeah, and the other answer is no, because even though Bellamy wants to get Clark back to Polis for her <laughs> nightblood, the reality is that they don't have enough time to inject everyone with nightblood before the death wave in 11 hours, so this is a really stupid idea. I mean, Clark is just, like, pulling at straws at this point. I, I think that there would have been a way to do this a few days ago, but now when you have, like, 11 hours, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. There's no time. Like, let it go, guys. Let it go. Uh, Monty drives up and says they have to go, but as they're packing, Clark starts to uh, cough up blood. Uh, Monty gives Clark his extra radiation suit, saying it was from Jasper, or it was for Jasper, and he would have wanted her to put it on. I love that that little subtle look that flashes across Bellamy's face when he realizes the reason Jasper doesn't need this suit. It was so sad. I I like that they didn't make a huge meal out of this. It was very subtle, and it hit just the right balance. Um, And again, Bob Morley's acting is, is, is always incredible. I mean, it's like he knew that Jasper wasn't going to change his mind, but there's a big difference between knowing it and finding out that it actually happened and, and that your friend is dead, essentially. And I, I, I hate that the rest of the group doesn't have time to mourn Jasper, but they don't have time. And I, I do like that the writers included this brief little moment here so that his death could be acknowledged. And my head canon is going to be that, you know, they, they will mourn their friends once they have like a second to breathe and they're not trying to survive. Absolutely. I agree with that. Spellamy says that even if Clark is sick now, it took Luna a little while to get better, but Clark reminds him that they won't let everyone in if she's still sick. Bellamy says there's no other way for them to survive, but Clark might have another plan. And again, my girl Clark coming in last minute with the third option. At, at this point, did you expect the rocket? Because I did not. I, I had no idea what she was thinking, but it was Clark, so I trusted her. I mean, I'll be totally honest. I'd actually seen the finale spoilers that revealed they were going back to space, so I, I wasn't surprised. Um, but I was incredibly excited because this really was opening up the possibility for my theory that the Allegis Miners were going to come back to Earth somehow because of what the delinquents did while they were in space. Also, I just really like space. So um, we, we, we theorized before this season started that there were only two ways they could survive the apocalypse, you know, either going under the Earth or going above it. We thought they'd just pick one, but they picked both. So great. <laughs> Excellent. True 100 fashion. So Raven is in Becca's lab, kind of aware at this point there is not enough time for them to get her and go back to uh, Polis. But then she hears the door open and seven people show up and take off their helmets in this like super cheesy coordinated manner. And Raven realizes that her friends came for her anyway. This was so gloriously cheesy. I loved it. I I loved seeing that look on Raven's face. She's just so happy and so relieved. This was like totally Bellamy's idea, by the way. Like you probably even had them practice it so they could get it just right for dramatic, you know, effect. Yeah, yeah. That's (laughs) definitely like official canon now. Yep. Uh, So Bellamy tells Raven that they are not leaving her behind. And Raven says they don't have time to go back. To which Clark replies, they're not going back. They are going up. Mind blown. We had to find a way to use that rocket somehow. And here it is at last. (laughs) When Raven reminds them they don't have enough fuel to get down, Harper says it sounds like a five-year problem to her. And I love this line. 
Like, like we have you and we have Monty, so we will figure something out. Yes, I did too. Like, this made me like Harper more than anything else has so far. <laughs> um, so they lay out the crazy plan. So basically, they are not just going back to space. They are going back to the Ark, where they will use the water reclamator and the algae farm, which is going to give them food and water. They will take the oxygenator from the lighthouse bunker, so they'll have oxygen. And as for everything else, they will just figure out when they get there. So uh, Monty and Raven both agreed this plan is probably going to fail and kill them all. But, you know, staying on Earth will also kill them. So as Raven says, the death wave can kiss her ass. This was overall just a very fun scene to watch. Um, I, I love when the delinquents are all together working things out and using their heads. It was great. Yeah, so true. You know, the show is at its best when it remembers that the delinquents are its greatest strength. And I am so excited for them to go back to space, guys. Sarah is more excited about this than anyone else. Um, I'm also <laughs> excited, but not not like Sarah. <laughs> I, that might be the case. Um, but I'm going to wait until next episode to discuss it properly. Uh, and with that, let us wrap up this episode. And we only have one more to go. Can't believe we made it. We're so close. Well, we haven't made it yet. Not, you just cursed us. <laughs> Um, okay, so next and last episode next week is called Prime Fire. Three guesses to what that means. Also, not necessarily next week. We'll see when it comes. <laughs> yeah, I think it might. It'll happen when it happens. We'll try next week. <laughs> no guarantees. Um, so do you want to talk about your favorite scene? Yeah, my favorite scene is the one we just talked about with all the delinquents kind of together in Becca's lab. Um, I love when they get to kind of riff off each other. Plus, I still do and always will adore this set. Um, I'm not sure if we're ever going to see it again after this season. I hope so. But in case we don't, I am just basking in it while we still can. Good point. Very good point. And I, I loved that scene, too. That was my other choice. Um, but the one I ended up going with was the scene between Clark and Abby when she was leaving to go rescue Raven. And everything about this scene was beautiful. And it just felt really important. Like, these two have not always seen eye to eye on everything. But I love where they've ended up. Um, and it's really a testament to both of them that they've been able to repair this relationship as well as they have and I just loved it yeah so what was your favorite line my favorite line is when Abby was talking to Clark and she said I told you there were no good guys but that's not true there are you are this show it never lets us rest on our laurels because you know both of these things are true there are no good guys and yet we still need to act like we are the good guys and I think this is something that Clark really needed to hear and as we know too this is the last conversation she's going to have with her mother for a while so these were some great parting words absolutely I totally agree I love that line my favorite line from this um, episode was when Kane told Jaha you saved humanity, but if you don't stop now, you're taking every bit of that salvation back. Um, I don't think this is surprising to anyone. <laughs> and I just loved it because this was so insightful. Um, and it's just one of the many reasons why I really love Kane. You know, he is able to see into the heart of what drives people, and he reaches them through that window. And it also gives Jaha the opportunity to recognize there is another way, not only to stop the bloodshed, but to save himself, which I was really into. So... It was yeah. great. I can't believe you have a favorite line that is talking about Jaha. Well, this was like Jaha getting Jaha back to the place where he started. And, yeah. and this was, I felt like this was like three seasons in the making. Mm -hmm. I agree. So with that, guys, that is our episode. Um, if you would like to, you can get in contact with us at and email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That's S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at skycast, and you can find us on Tumblr at skycast.tumblr.com. You can also tweet at us on our own Twitter accounts. I am at bperlman89. And I am at Sarah R. McCabe. 
So thanks for joining us on SkyCast, and we will be back soon with the season finale. Goodbye. Bye-bye.